Part three, propositions two to fifteen of the Ethics by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. The Ethics by Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by R. H. M. Elworth. Part three, propositions eleven to fifteen. Proposition eleven. Whatsoever increases or diminishes, helps or hinders the power of activity in our body, the idea thereof increases or diminishes, helps or hinders the power of thought in our mind. Proof. This proposition is evident from part, part 2, proposition 7, or from part 2, proposition 14. Note. Thus we see that the mind can undergo many changes and can pass sometimes to a state of greater perfection, sometimes to a state of lesser perfection. These passive states of transition explain to us the emotions of pleasure and pain. By pleasure, therefore, in the following propositions I shall signify a passive state wherein the mind passes to a greater perfection. By pain I shall signify a passive state wherein the mind passes to a lesser perfection. Further, the emotion of pleasure in reference to the body and mind together I shall call stimulation, titillatio, or merriment, hilaritas. The emotion of pain in the same relation I shall call suffering or melancholy. But we must bear in mind that stimulation and suffering are attributed to man when one part of his nature is more affected than the rest, merriment and melancholy, when all parts are alike affected. What I mean by desire I have explained in the note to Proposition 9 of this part. Beyond these three I recognize no other primary emotion. I will show, as I proceed, that all other emotions arise from these three. But before I go further, I should like here to explain at greater length Proposition 10 of this part, in order that we may clearly understand how one idea is contrary to another. In the note to Part 2, Proposition 17, we showed that the idea, which constitutes the essence of mind, involves the existence of body, so long as the body itself exists. Again it follows from what we pointed out in the corollary to Part 2, Proposition 8, that the present existence of our mind depends solely on the fact that the mind involves the actual existence of the body. Lastly, we showed Part 2, Proposition 17, 18 and Note, that the power of the mind, whereby it imagines and remembers things, also depends on the fact that it involves the actual existence of the body. Whence it follows, that the present existence of the mind and its power of imagining are removed, as soon as the mind ceases to affirm the present existence of the body. Now the cause, why the mind ceases to affirm this existence of the body, cannot be the mind itself. Part 3, Proposition 4. Nor again the fact that the body ceases to exist. For, by Part 2, Proposition 6, the cause why the mind affirms the existence of the body is not that the body began to exist. Therefore, for the same reason, it does not cease to affirm the existence of the body because the body ceases to exist. But, Part 2, Proposition 17, this result follows from another idea which excludes the present existence of our body and, consequently, of our mind, and which is therefore contrary to the idea constituting the essence of the mind. 
Proposition 12. The mind, as far as it can, endeavours to conceive those things which increase or help the power of activity in the body. Proof. So long as the human body is affected in a mode which involves the nature of any external body, the human mind will regard that external body as present. Part 2. Proposition 17. And consequently, Part 2. Proposition 7. So long as the human mind regards an external body as present, that is, Part 2. Proposition 17. Note. Conceives it, the human body is affected in a mode which involves the nature of the said external body. Thus, so long as the mind conceives things which increase or help the power of activity in our body, the body is affected in modes which increase or help its power of activity. Part 3. Postulate 1. Consequently, Part 3. Proposition 11. The mind's power of thinking is for that period increased or helped. Thus, Part 3. Proposition 7 and Proposition 9. The mind, as far as it can, endeavours to imagine such things. Quod erat demonstrandum. Proposition 13. When the mind conceives things which diminish or hinder the body's power of activity, it endeavours, as far as possible, to remember things which exclude the existence of the first named things. Proof. So long as the mind conceives anything of the kind alluded to, the power of the mind and body is diminished or constrained. CF Part 3 Proposition 12 Proof Nevertheless, it will continue to conceive it until the mind conceives something else which excludes the present existence thereof. Part 2 Proposition 17 That is, as I have just shown, the power of the mind and of the body is diminished or constrained until the mind conceives something else which excludes the existence of the former thing conceived. Therefore the mind, part 3, proposition 9, as far as it can, will endeavour to conceive or remember the latter. Quod erat demonstrandum. Corollary. Hence it follows that the mind shrinks from conceiving those things which diminish or constrain the power of itself and of the body. Note. From what has been said we may clearly understand the nature of love and hate. Love is nothing else but pleasure accompanied by the idea of an external cause. Hate is nothing else but pain accompanied by the idea of an external cause. We further see that he who loves necessarily endeavours to have and to keep present to him the object of his love, while he who hates endeavours to remove and destroy the object of his hatred. But I will treat of these matters at more length hereafter. Proposition 14. If the mind has once been affected by two emotions at the same time, it will whenever it is afterwards affected by one of these two, be also affected by the other. Proof. If the human body has once been affected by two bodies at once, whenever afterwards the mind conceives one of them, it will straightway remember the other also. Part 2. Proposition 18. But the mind's conceptions indicate rather the emotions of our body than the nature of external bodies. Part 2. Proposition 16. Corollary 2. Therefore, if the body, and consequently the mind, part 3, definition 3, has been once affected by two emotions at the same time, it will, whenever it is afterwards affected by one of the two, be also affected by the other. Proposition 15. Anything can, accidentally, be the cause of pleasure, pain, or desire. Proof. Let it be granted that the mind is simultaneously affected by two emotions of which one neither increases nor diminishes its power of activity, 
and the other does neither increase or diminish the said power. Part 3. Postulate 1. From the foregoing proposition it is evident that, whenever the mind is afterwards affected by the former, through its true cause which, by hypothesis, neither increases nor diminishes its power of action, it will be at the same time affected by the latter, which does increase or diminish its power of activity. That is, part 3, proposition 11, note, it will be affected with pleasure or pain. Thus the former of the two emotions will, not through itself, but accidentally, be the cause of pleasure or pain. In the same way also it can be easily shown that a thing may be accidentally the cause of desire. Quod erat demonstrandum. Corollary. Simply from the fact that we have regarded a thing with the emotion of pleasure or pain, though that thing be not the efficient cause of the emotion, we can either love or hate it. Proof. For from this fact alone it arises, part 3, proposition 14, that the mind afterwards conceiving the said thing is affected with the emotion of pleasure or pain. That is, part 3, proposition 11, note, according as the power of the mind and body may be increased or diminished, etc. And consequently, part 3, proposition 12, according as the mind may desire or shrink from the conception of it, part 3, proposition 13, corollary, in other words, part 3, proposition 13, note, according as it may love or hate the same, quod erat demonstrandum. Note, hence we understand how it may happen that we love or hate a thing without any cause for our emotion being known to us, merely, as a phrase is, from sympathy or antipathy. We should refer to the same category those objects which affect us pleasurably or painfully, simply because they resemble other objects which affect us in the same way. This I will show in the next proposition. I am aware that certain authors, who were the first to introduce these terms sympathy and antipathy, wished to signify thereby some occult qualities in things. Nevertheless, I think we may be permitted to use the same terms to indicate known or manifest qualities. End of part 3, propositions 11 to 15.